you please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16? Luke chapter 16, um, we're continuing in our series through the parables of Jesus. The parable that we are covering today is famously called or popularly called the, the rich man and Lazarus. David Wells has um, famously said that the reality of God lays lightly on the American church. And I think a, an important part of that is, is the reality of hell. The reality of hell lays lightly on the American church. We don't talk about hell much, maybe because it was talked about so much in some gospel-deficient ways and some fear-mongering ways in our past. But the correct response to an overemphasis on hell is not a neglect of teaching on it, but a right-sizing of it. And very often I think that part of the antidote to an evangelicalism that is drunk on superficiality, drunk on therapeutic religiosity, drunk on a moralistic this-worldliness, is a deep and biblical soberness about the reality of hell. Jesus talked about hell a lot. He talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible. And I think here we have in Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, an example of the heightened reality of what lays in the life or death hereafter. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house, because I have five brothers, to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for even these hard words, words that give us pause, words that may prompt self-examination, not just of our own state of faith, but our urgency in sharing the gospel with others. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be bringing to mind and heart the goodness of your Son, that we would see his glory in a way that we could uh, not help but be changed by it. And it's in his, his, his name that we pray these things, in the names of Christ Jesus. Amen. Um, 
This is one of Jesus' more detailed stories, of course. It's enhanced by the inclusion of proper names, Lazarus and Abraham. It's the only time that Jesus does this in a recorded parable. Some have surmised that because of that detail, that it's not a parable at all, that it's actually a real incident, perhaps, something that is actually taking place or has taken place that the Lord is recounting. More likely, however, the inclusion of the proper names is to um, heighten the reality of what is being described, to emphasize that real people with real lives go to heaven and go to hell. There's perhaps some significance to the fact that Jesus names the rewarded. Lazarus gets a name, but the rich man doesn't. But we find these two characters, the poor man named Lazarus and the rich man named who knows what, in the intermediate states that are designed respectively for the faithful and for the faithless. And for all else that Jesus may be doing with this story, one thing he is definitely doing is telling us, first of all, that hell is real. That hell is real in its agony. It is real in its agony. These days, as I said, hell is not just out of fashion. For many, it's out of belief. Whenever we point to the biblical descriptions and the biblical evidence, some who stumble at the offensiveness of the idea will argue that it's all metaphorical language. It's just symbolic language. Some will say of this very passage, it's just a parable. Okay, but a parable about what? Like symbols, parables have reference. They correspond to things. Things that, in fact, are bigger and more real than their examples. The way Jesus' parables function is, is not allegorically. He's not telling moralistic fables. His parables contain, as I said, a a kind of heightened reality. But Jesus isn't making up mythical things and mythical places, right? He tells story about real things, wheat and trees and fields and workers and coins. He doesn't tell stories about ghosts or goblins or unicorns or fairies. He didn't make up these post-mortem locations. Whatever these places are that he is pointing to here, in fact, the reality of them is likely enhanced from the parable. As good as the comfort of Lazarus is described, heaven will be more comfortable as agonizing as the terrors of Hades is described here. The reality will be worse. And what Jesus refers to as as torment and anguish cannot mean an unconscious void. More obviously, it, it certainly cannot mean that everybody goes to heaven. Nor could it refer to a kind of hell on earth. I'll say a little bit more about that shortly, but... What he's referring to can't simply be a a hell on earth since the rich man is clearly in a post-mortem place. He has died and has been buried. And he is unreachable by heaven. Jesus is drawing on the traditional Jewish designations for the afterlife, Abraham's bosom and Hades, or the grave of the wicked. And he is not essentially making a practical point about being nice to each other. Be kind to poor people. He's making a theological point that confirms and clarifies earlier divine revelation. We see in this parable that the chasm is fixed. It is irrevocable. 
The anguish will be forever, and from it there will be no relief. Whatever may be gathered from the narrative as speculative, this point is not unclear. This point is not hazy. Jesus is teaching through the figure of Abraham, receiver of the everlasting covenant, that God's promise of condemnation is everlasting. Brothers and sisters, hell is real. It is real. In fact, the holiness of God demands that it be real. In this parable, we learn, for instance, that the place of condemnation, verses 23 and 28, is a place of torment. We learn that it is a place of agony. We learn that it is a place of fire. In Mark chapter 9, we learn that it's a place of unquenchable fire where the worm does not die. In Matthew 13, we learn that um, it's a place where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret. In Matthew 25, Jesus calls hell a place of outer darkness. <coughs> in Matthew 10, we learn that the soul and the body are destroyed in hell. This is not much ado about nothing. This is not symbolic language that has no reference to reality. Hell is real. And it's amazingly simple to go there. All you have to do to go to hell is nothing. All you have to do is care only about this life and just keep on living. Verse 19, the rich man just feasted lavishly each day just carrying on, just being himself, doing his own thing. And he's either unaware or unconcerned about the danger of the wide way that leads to destruction. And perhaps the most famous sermon on hell ever preached, Jonathan Edwards paints a vivid picture of the reality of the soul in a grave danger that is not perceived. Your wickedness, he says, makes you as it were heavy as lead and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and your best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would be able to stop a falling rock. And the world, he says, would spew you out were it not for the sovereign hand of him who has subjected it in hope. There are the black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind. Otherwise, it would come with fury and your destruction would come like a whirlwind and you would be like the chaff on the summer threshing floor. The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. And you are every day treasuring up more wrath. We don't preach like this anymore. 
And I fear in our neglect, we are inadvertently adding to the complacency of those whose guilt is constantly increasing and every day treasuring up more wrath. Our treating of wounds lightly will only exacerbate the agony of eternal condemnation. Those of you who are called to preach, you must preach as if souls hang in the balance. You must preach as if hell is real, because hell is real in its agony. And because secondly, hell is permanent in its scope. Hell is permanent in its scope. C.S. Lewis once said that hell's doors are locked from the inside. In other words, God is just giving people what they want. The people in hell, in effect, have chosen to go there, and they are choosing to be there. Lewis says that God says to the condemned at the last day, your will be done. I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis. I think he gets a million things right. I think he gets a few things wrong, and this is one of them. I understand the sentiment, and there is truth to it, of course. We are responsible for our sin. We are responsible for our choices. We do reap the consequences of our sin and our bad decisions, but this is not the primary way the Scriptures speak of hell. It is not, for instance, a sealed-off place from the presence of God that is ruled over by the devil. No, it is the place where God's presence is only felt in wrath. He is there in wrath. The devil himself will be confined here for all eternity. And God doesn't passively allow people to go to hell. No, the holy God of Israel sends unrepentant sinners to hell. He says to them on the day of judgment, my will be done. This is why hell exists. The doors to hell are locked from the outside. That's how serious God is about his holiness. If the doors were locked from the inside, would, would we have any doubt that this rich man wouldn't want out? But it doesn't even seem to occur to him that he can escape from the agony. He's asking for some comfort, but it doesn't cross his mind that he can find an escape hatch. Anybody who is in hell will forever wish they could get out. But they can't. Verse 26, besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. They want to get out, but they can't. And neither can those from there cross over to us. The, the chasm between the place of torment and the place of paradise is fixed. It cannot be changed or crossed. It is not malleable or permeable. And it is not finite. Hell is forever. It is, as some have defined it, eternal conscious torment. In three different places, Jesus refers to the fire of hell as unquenchable. In Revelation 14.11, it is said that those in hell, uh, the smoke of their torment goes up forever. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, we find the phrase eternal destruction. In Jude 7, eternal fire. In Jude 13, the gloom of utter darkness reserved forever. There is no escaping hell for those condemned to it. It is a forever state. It is an eternal state. 
And it must be because God's holiness is not finite. His holiness goes on forever. And one thing we are reminded of from this parable is how all the social and religious currency in the world cannot purchase our escape from condemnation. The context around the passage in Luke 16 is is quite telling. Prior to this parable, Jesus tells the parable of the dishonest manager in verses 1 through 13. And then he speaks about the surpassing worth of the kingdom to some Pharisees in verses 14 through 18. And in verse 14, he makes a point to tell us that these Pharisees were lovers of money. The preparatory context to this parable and the parable itself seem to be pointedly echoing Jesus' copious warnings about loving money and reemphasizing the point that laying up treasures on earth will only gain you the worst kind of poverty in the age to come. Lazarus had nothing to commend him to God except his faith in the promise. And you and I have nothing of ourselves to commend us to God. There is no currency that can buy our way into heaven except for the riches of grace in Christ. The truth of the gospel is so hard for the comfortable to get to. But for those who are suffering, for those at the bottom of the barrel, for those at the end of their rope, grace is a lifeline into the paradise to come. It is an anchor. In this life, Lazarus was going through a kind of hell, what we would often call a hell on earth. He's going going through hell, we would say, about Lazarus and people like him. But even all of that suffering pales in comparison to his heavenly comfort. I don't know where you are this morning in in your life, but maybe this can be a great encouragement to you. The truth of the eternality of heaven can give you courage and hope to endure the pains of this life. Like Paul, we might be able to call even lifelong suffering, lifelong disability, Lifelong hardship, a light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that is going to be revealed. We must look to the things that are not seen. Blessed are those who embrace their spiritual poverty, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in this way, the good news is as good as the bad news is is bad. Hell is real in its agony, and hell is permanent in its scope. But thirdly, and finally, hell is avoidable in its conqueror. Hell is avoidable in its conqueror. The good news is as good as the bad news is bad. And in fact, the good news is more good than the bad news is bad. What Jesus is doing in all of his parables, including this one, I think, is showing the glory of the kingdom of heaven and the glory of himself as king. So every story, every symbol, every sign, every miracle, they're standing as windows into the other world. The world as it ought to be and as it one day will fully be where the sun of righteousness reigns and the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. The rich man knows it's too late for him. 
but he's concerned for his unbelieving relatives. So he has this evangelistic sense now. He feels the condemnation of hell. He's concerned about the salvation of his loved ones. Verse 27, Father, he said, I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. Notice that just like he's asking for Lazarus to come give him water, he's trying to boss the poor man around even in the afterlife. But Abraham says... Verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he says, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone raises from the dead. I'm reminded of the scene, do you remember after the resurrection, where Thomas... Doubting Thomas. It's it's terrible that we call him Doubting Thomas. We don't call Peter denying Peter. Right? It's it's a lot worse. He's just a guy who had some questions. Like, forever doubting. Right? Thomas doubted. He said, I want to see. I believe if I can see. And Jesus, we, we assume, based on the conversation condescends to let Thomas touch. To touch the wound in his side, to to see the scars in his hand. But then Jesus says something really important for you and I, for Thomas as well, but for you and I to remember. He says, do you believe because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. What really makes the difference between those who believe and those who don't believe? The rich man wants to suggest it's signs and wonders. Underneath kind of the, the uh, you know, subtext of what he's requesting is like, if you had just shown something to me, then I wouldn't be here. If you'd given me a sign and a wonder, if you'd given me a miracle, if I had seen something extraordinary that I couldn't explain except by this reality, I wouldn't be in this place. And yet Lazarus, as far as we can tell, had no circumstantial signs of blessing. If anything, the rich man in all his comfort and lavish lifestyle should be able to say, God gave me these gifts. There must be a God. I don't deserve this life. Lazarus didn't have any of the comforts of life. While the dogs are licking his sores, Despite all that he's experienced, despite all that he could feel and see around him, he had an all-conquering faith. Last week, a friend sent me a, a, a link to a video where YouTubers Rhett and Link were giving an update on their ongoing deconstruction of the Christian faith. You might know of Rhett and Link from their popular YouTube show, Good Mythical Morning. A lot of products have come out of that. And while their programming has never been um, religious in nature, Red and Link were at one time professing Christians. And so a lot of Christian young people actually watched their shows. Clean show, fun show, funny show. Including my own kids, they watched it when they were younger. But as of 2020, both of them had come to describe themselves as largely agnostic. And have begun what they call their deconstruction journey, deconstructing their faith. 
These guys, I, I learned actually in this video, I didn't know this, they used to work for Campus Crusade back in the day, evangelizing lost people. In fact, they talk about this in the video, the implications of evangelizing people who don't believe. Now they no longer profess faith in Christ. And so my friend sent me this video, not because he thinks I'm a fan of Rhett and Link. I've actually never watched um, an episode of their, of their program. But on this particular show, Link was giving an update on his own journey out of the faith. And it just so happened that he was discussing this little book that came out from the Gospel Coalition last year called Before You Lose Your Faith. And in that book, it features different chapters from different authors who are commenting, giving encouragement, biblical truth in response to the deconstruction phenomenon. And one of those chapters was mine. And it just so happened that mine was about the only chapter Link had read. <laughs> He went through the chapter titles, he said, and they don't, none, none of them sounded good to him or interesting, except for my chapter, which was called, Sometimes People Just Don't Believe. And he had a lot to say about it. He didn't like it, of course. He even referred to the truth claims in that chapter as lies, the lies in this chapter. And he said that the, the, the tone of it or the certainty of it um, was triggering for him, that it sounded like preaching. I don't know how not to sound like a preacher, even when I'm writing. I, <laughs> so, mea culpa, okay, I'll, I'll own that one. But he kept talking, right? I mean, he just so disdained this chapter, it's full of lies, it's triggering for me, and then he starts talking for like 45 minutes. And he keeps talking. And I could tell he wasn't just objecting to the content, he was actually showing signs of wrestling with it. In that chapter, I actually discussed this parable, Luke chapter 16. And, and Link, in his commentary, criticizing my chapter, identified himself in the place of the rich man, because he's a very rich man now because of his show. And he wonders aloud if he's actually in danger of hell. If he's in danger of the hell that he doesn't even believe in anymore. We all have to face this reality. Pray for Link. Perhaps the hound of heaven is still after him. With his words, he is stating that he is certain that these things are not true. And yet, the more he talked, I sensed that there's something in his heart that isn't quite sure. There's an underlying fear there, which I'm sure he would chalk up to trauma or the residual effect of a harmful Christian experience. But I also wonder if it's not the Holy Spirit nudging him, pushing him to reconsider. I don't know what he needs to profess faith again, what it will take, but it's probably not what he thinks it will take. Sometimes people will say, like this rich man implies, that if God would just speak to me, or if God would just show up, or just give me a vision, or, or prove himself in some visible way, then I would believe. And the reality is, they wouldn't. They would explain the vision away. They would chalk it up to a hallucination or to a magic trick or some other thing. Anything to avoid the simplicity of faith. 
There are a lot of people who saw Jesus' miracles who didn't follow Jesus. And the reality is that as I wrote in that book on, on uh, um, as I wrote in that book chapter, Link is objecting to so strongly, sometimes the explanation for why people walk away from Christianity is not because it didn't somehow prove itself to them, but because they just don't believe. If you don't believe in hell, you don't need to believe in Jesus. You don't need to find him compelling. You don't need to find him comforting. You don't need to find him conquering. If hell is just a myth, Jesus can be just a good teacher. But if hell is real, we will need more than spiritual aphorisms to escape it. And indeed, this good teacher, Jesus, repeatedly warns anyone who is listening to him that to reject him is to accept condemnation. And to accept him is to escape it. There is no avoiding eternal conscious torment without refuge in Christ. Without believing in his word. There's no bargaining that you and I can do. There's no way around faith in Jesus, even by religion or spirituality. It is faith alone that justifies And this faith alone lays hold of Christ alone. And Christ alone affords us escape from death. Don't be afraid, he says in Revelation chapter 1. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. He is the only way of escape. You see, all sin is going to be punished. No sin slips through the cracks. So the choice that actually lays before us is this. We can either take the punishment ourselves or we can let Christ take it for us. And there's a warning for us here. Because this place is dangerous. I've been reminded of this all too well and all too recently. This place is dangerous. It's it's, it's dangerous like serving in a church is dangerous. Environments like this one, if we're not careful, can serve an illusion of salvation that isn't real. It can be very easy to delude ourselves because we're doing so much for God that of course we belong to Him. I've had so many reminders in the last few weeks to keep a close watch on my life and teaching. I never want to mistake doing things for God with being known by God. I don't want to mistake talking a lot about the gospel for actually believing in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, your position or your aspiration or your religiosity or your interest in theology are no substitute for intimacy with Jesus. Nothing, not even spiritual things, can replace actually being friends with Jesus. The rich man deluded himself. His ease and comfort, he assumed, were forever. Don't be like him. Assuming that even your interest in God, your work in ministry will earn you credit in the age to come. The scariest passage in Scripture to me 
is in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will see the kingdom of heaven. For on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do good works for you? Didn't I study theology? Jesus. Didn't I serve in a church? Jesus. Didn't I get my seminary degree? All in your name. And he will say, depart from me. I have no idea who you are. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded. Jesus tells the religious experts in John chapter 5, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. The point of Moses and the prophets is the centrality of Christ. There is a difference, friends, between using the word and believing the word. And what Jesus is pointing to here through Abraham is the life-saving message of the living and powerful Word of God. How powerful is the Word of God? Jesus tells Peter in Matthew chapter 16 that just the genuine confession of Christ is so strong that hell cannot prevail against it. Not because we are strong, but because Christ is. Hell is real in its agony, but heaven is real in its paradise. Heaven is real in its joys. Heaven is real in its eternal bliss. And because heaven is the place where Christ's kingship eradicates all sin, vanquishes all evil, banishes all suffering, crushes all grief, provides all happiness. In Christ, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation. In Christ, there is a fountain of grace and a world of love. Don't just use the word. Believe it. Believe it. And take care that you believe it. Believe the word of his cross, which proclaims justice for unrighteousness, where Jesus' blood pays the penalty for sin that we owe but cannot pay. Believe the word of his resurrection, which proclaims that death has lost its sting, that death will be swallowed up forever by the Savior, who rose himself on the third day, glorious and mighty, and sealing the doom of doom itself. The grave that could not hold him will not hold those who turn from their sin and trust in him. In Christ, you are hellproof. He is your only escape. The hell-proof, death-proof King, Christ Jesus, who has conquered all and is ready with open arms to receive any who will take refuge in Him. And just as the chasm is fixed, just as the hellishness of hell is forever, the wonders of heaven are forever too. And He will never cast out those who come to Him. He will never leave you or forsake you. If you've repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, you will be His forever and ever. Even death cannot touch you. Hell will have no claim on you. The escape from God's wrath is found in God himself. And as Christ has conquered, he gives the right to all of us who trust in him to become ourselves more than conquerors. His righteousness will win the day for us. 
I pray that if you have not fully trusted in him, and I don't want to assume because of this setting that you have. Let us never assume that. Do it today before it's too late. He really is worth it. I'll close with this. This is a a bit of verse from Robert Murray McShane. It's called Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Sidkenu was nothing to me. I oft read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure and John's simple page. But even when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah Sidkenu seemed nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul. Yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. Jehovah Sidkenu was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me, by light from on high. Then legal fears shook me. I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah Sidkenu, my Savior must be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished with boldness I came. To drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. Jehovah Sidkenu is all things to me. Jehovah Sidkenu, my treasure and boasts. Jehovah Sidkenu, I ne'er can be lost. In thee I shall conquer by flood and by field. My cable, my anchor, my breastplate, my shield. Even treading the valley, the shadow of death. This watchword shall rally my faltering breath. For while from life's fever... My God sets me free. Jehovah Sidkenu, my death song shall be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are heavy truths to carry around in our hearts. And we know that we can cast all of our cares upon you. And we ask that you would cast away the dark shadow Remind us of the light of your Son. And Father, I do pray if there's anyone in this room who has not passed from death to life, that even this very morning they would lay hold of your Son. Stir their spiritual senses to see their great need. For every precious saint in this room, I I pray, Father, that you would strengthen our assurance. Help us to know that our hope is not anything that we do, but what your Son has done. And may all that we do in service to you simply be the response of worship and gratitude. So that on the last day, when we stand before your presence, we can turn out our pockets and hold up our empty hands and simply say, Christ is all. We thank you for him, and it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.